Greetings, errants, glitches, breakaways, thought criminals, and genuinely open-minded and outright curious inhabitants of whatever simulacrum we find ourselves navigating at the moment. You are about to set sail on another free first hour episode of The Melt. If you find yourself wanting to dig deeper and have the desire to join the conversation during our monthly Melt meetups, you might want to consider becoming a monthly subscriber. For a measly five dead presidents per month, you can have access to full-length, early, and exclusive episodes. Just click the Patreon or Locals link in the episode notes below to create the timeline that will set it all in motion. It's suspiciously simple, altogether painless, and just might inspire feelings of bliss and or lingering euphoria. So, without further ado, let the conversations begin! This is Hunter Muse. And this is Chris Snipes. And you are listening to The Melt. Race has become such a divisive tactic to divide those of us who constantly bombard ourselves with dispatches from our favorite echo chamber that keeps telling us that racial tension seems to be an inescapable element of society. Allegedly, every interaction is unwittingly motivated by racial dynamics, with one party forever cast into the role of oppressor and the other as the oppressed. Much of the hard-earned gain of the civil rights movement of the 50s through the 70s seems to have been for naught, according to BLM and Antifa, as the issues are recast to fit the trending narrative, which emphatically promotes groupthink and identity politics. If there's an us and a them, then we can be convinced that we have just cause to endlessly infight amongst ourselves, as opposed to paying attention to the real issues that affect all of us, as opposed to select groups. Once we start seeing each other as members of groups that must think a particular way, just because of the color of their skin, who they sleep with, who they vote for, what sports teams they like, what gang they're in, who they worship, etc., we stop seeing them as fellow humans equipped with self-directed agency who most likely are a complicated bundle of sometimes contradictory nuances that could never be so easily categorized. It is cynical and, yes, racist to assume that one's race dictates the way that they live and think. We are now seeing segregation being championed 
by the same faction that once so passionately fought against it. If you are of a particular race, you must act and speak in a prescribed manner. And if you stray from this prescription, you get banished from the group and cast into the opposing group. How convenient. Forever a prisoner of an idiotic and histrionic duality that exemplifies the crudest of the extremes. And people consistently seem to fall for it. I believe it's because they're lulled into thinking that their choices are what is given to them and then they stop thinking about it past that point. The thing that is inconvenient for the social engineers is when we start cultivating original thoughts that color outside of their lines. We are not our categories. We certainly aren't their categories. We are individuals first and foremost. We are part of a greater whole, but we need not feel it necessary to walk lockstep with them especially if they are walking in the metaphorical directions of self-destruction, irrationality, short-sightedness, hysteria, or banal tribalism in any form. The masses do not dictate what is right or moral. That is the responsibility of the individual. So many of the people that we like to talk to are capable and often very astute at thinking outside of the box. And one of these forward thinkers is today's guest, podcaster, senior content officer at the Equiano Project, and founder of the Different Voice Initiative, Ada Ekpala. I start off the conversation by asking Ada to tell us a little bit about her background. First, thank you for having me on, of course. And um, yeah, so I'm Ada, and I basically um, write in podcasts and sort of create content in relation to. Um, pushing back against a lot of harmful narratives that we've seen, you know, um, spread over a couple of years in the UK and also in the US um, in relation to race, identity, um, race relations, um, and so on. And basically, I am a person that has always been sort of a, a, a contrarian, you know, I've always had that contrarian spirit in me. And not in the sense of, you know, rebelling just for rebelling's sake, but I would sort of pin it to curiosity and trying to understand, you know, a lot more that's sort of being presented to you. And when the whole, actually started before the 2020 sort of riots and the George, George Floyd stuff, uh, which was also sort of over here in the UK in terms of, you know, the conversation around that. And um, it was kind of building up to that, especially when you had um, sort of the marriage of Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. And there was a lot of stuff being, you know, put out there in terms of, you know, oppression and in terms of, you know, if you had sort of dark skin or if you weren't white, that was sort of the code at that time. Then, you know, there, it was sort of, you know, inevitable for you to kind of suffer you know, in whatever space you found yourself in, even if it was sort of the highest spaces in the land, so, so to speak. And I just found that at odds with, you know, not just my reality, but just this common sense, you know, and I was really annoyed with the one-sidedness of things, right? And that's basically when I started pushing back and speaking and creating content and, yeah, the rest is history, really. And what well, you don't you you're based in in London now, but you didn't you weren't you didn't grow up in London. You grew up in Africa, 
maybe you could tell a little bit about how those two uh, contexts differed culturally uh, as far as race or as far as just life in general, and maybe talk about the what, maybe why you came to London and what culture shock or whatever you experienced once you were there. Maybe things were better in some ways and maybe things were worse. Exactly. So the first cultural shock was the, the freezing cold, of course. So, you know, <laughs> as soon as I stepped off the plane and, you know, <laughs> I remember the first time I saw smoke coming out of someone's mouth and they weren't smoking. And that was just like, what, what fantasy land am I in? It was just so bizarre. <laughs> so I was born in Nigeria and I grew up there as well. And sort of all my family in, is there. And, you know, my formative years were spent there. And there I was always, I wouldn't even say taught explicitly because I just saw that, you know, in the examples of my immediate and extended family, you know, that notion of sheer hard work, just hard grifting, hard work, um, and that resourcefulness in terms of there was no excuse, right? There was no excuse to um, achieving you know, be in academically or professionally, in business, commercially. So I saw that around me. And we came to the UK because my dad was actually born in Wales, in Cardiff. Um, so we've always had that kind of links in the UK. My grandfather, you know, came here as well just to do some teaching because my grandfather was a, was a professor. So he came to do some teaching in some of the colleges here. So, you know, going back to that, doing what needs to be done, right, in terms of achieving success in any area of your life. So that's what I was always surrounded with. So when I came here um, at the age of 10, it was different because at that time, obviously, I was younger, so none of this race talk was so explicit. But I did experience moments where I was told, you know, on many occasions that, you know, I was sort of weird for a black person or something like that because my mannerisms were sort of different. The way I spoke was different. My interests and my hobbies and the things that I liked, you know, were different. And, you know, when you leave a country that's predominantly black, like 99% black, and then you enter a culture where there is that difference, and it was kind of weird for people to kind of realize that there were differences or there were variations in how to be so-called Black. So that's what I encountered, you know, when I came here. And it was, it was rather um, sort of being told that I was a Black. It didn't make sense, right? Um, so, yeah, I was exposed to this identity of Blackness when I came here in relation to that and you know and until sort of my going into college and university you know there were different times where either it was questioned or there was this kind of identity crisis of well what what does that actually mean to be black if it's not just you know your ethnicity or your skin color what is this ideological 
sort of additions to being black. And I, I could never reconcile with that. Did you? Have- no, I have many questions, but okay. go ahead. <laughs> what were, were there ex- an experience or a series of experiences that brought you to a place where you actually wanted to speak out about this stuff? Yeah. So publicly, yes, though it was sort of that build up, but definitely leading up to that, I did. There were so many moments where I had friction with different people you know, um, in terms of what I believed and what I didn't believe and for as trivial of, as trivial as things that I just enjoyed. So like I said, going back to that, well, do you know that you're a black person? Why do you like this? Or why do you think that? Or why don't you think this? You know, it, it it was sort of bubbling underneath of, you know, so many questions and a lot of confusion um, about that. And that's what prompted me to sort of give my opinion publicly, um, like I said, in 2020, first in relation to Meghan Markle, because I w- it was just, you know, there was just that one-sidedness of, you know, oppression and, you know, um, you know, Black victimhood. And that was what I'd been hearing my whole life. And I basically just got sick of it, you know, and... I, I just gave my opinion publicly about it, not for anything, but just to give my opinion, because that's, you know, one of the things I value most, being able to speak your mind and being able to think freely and express freely. And that's another problem that I found was prevalent in this so-called quote-unquote Black community. There was always that pushback, you know, when you gave an opinion that seemed to deviate from the expectations of what was in line with the so-called black identity and I don't mind criticisms I don't mind you know pushback I don't mind people having a problem with what you think or what you say but the biggest problem I find when you're a black person is that that's always linked back to you being black right it's not like let's say a white person and they give an opinion and it's just well you're you're just stupid, aren't you? Or that's a dumb opinion. But for a black person, there's that extra layer of, well, you're stupid as a black person. You know, I gave an opinion recently um, about how it it shouldn't be a shameful thing to say that you are proud to be British if you're a so-called ethnic minority. And that was what I had, you know, as a black person, how can you say that? Well, why can't it be just as a human being living in this country, like every everyone else, and I, I I needed to break out of that box of well, this is what I'm meant to think just because I have, you know, darker skin. I love it. Uh, I want to ask you about what your thoughts about maths being considered racist. Because this is a discussion that is now happening in the United States. Uh, What are your thoughts about this? I think it's so sad that it's funny, if that makes sense. (laughs) Totally. It's just, when I hear things like that, my heart actually breaks. Yeah. My heart completely breaks. And, you know, I don't want to be melodramatic, but that is how people should feel when they hear things like this, especially black people, because number one, that is racist in itself. Even as an African that came from a country where we do math 
as well, right? We we do math, we do science. So when I hear things like, you know, test scores are racist or, you know, objectivity or, you know, having this specific way of finding answers is racist. I always think, do these people know what we do in Africa or not? So without them understanding, they are being racist themselves, right? And it's you're almost creating this idea that we cannot compete by the rules. You know, I was, was, I was once listening to a man, a gentleman, talk about tests being racist. And he said, well, it isn't fair the kind of wording that is put in these tests, right? Because black people, they're not exposed to this kind of language. And then he gave even such a stupid example. I think said, oh, for example, a test question says that, you know, Ben is elated. And he said, well, black people don't know what elated means. And I was just like, do people understand what they're saying about their so-called group by purporting these lies. You know, for example, Asians and Chinese people, most of them, English is their second language, you know, and they're able to handle these tests so well. So why is it that Black people, most who are born or more of us are born in these countries or are more exposed to this language? Why do we need to be, you know, um, sort of put aside or why do these separate rules have to apply to us so is this kind of separatist thinking for some reason when it comes to black people that we're not able to follow the same rules and guidelines and you know patterns or whatever as any other group you know and um yeah it 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 will always cause more harm to the group that you're so-called trying to help and advocate yeah, I, I see that. I'm uh, in academics right now. I'm in the process of uh, getting my bachelor's degree in psychology. And so I deal with a lot of really, I mean, to me, I consider them inversions and, and, and really kind of backward thinking just in terms of equity and what equity means. And I think this idea that equal opportunity uh, really across the board is going to equal outcome is absurd because that's not really how life works. What you're saying is that what we have to do is prop people up and not really give them the opportunity to use their their own moxie or their own ability because they are disadvantaged in some regard. Uh, so I think it's this nerfing of the world that I really take umbrage with because I don't think it works. It doesn't work. And if I'm being honest with you, if that was just the case, I might not even mind. So you mentioned sort of propping up groups. I may not even mind as much, but what I'm seeing now as well is that it's not just propping up some groups, it's actually putting down other groups because of that, right? Mm -hmm. So in order for your group to rise up, then we need to actually discriminate, right? That can be kind of thinking past to, to be able to get rid of discrimination, we have to engage in discrimination. And that's not even just in relation to the racial stuff, even if you look in, in terms of the gender and things like that, it's all, and family, radical feminism, it's a term, it's in terms of sort of demoting 
the so-called dominant group in, in instead of as what you know Tony Tony Sewell, who's um, an academic uh, here, who um, um, he was commissioned to sort of you know explore the racial disparities in the UK and and why these came about, and he said the same thing, and he sort of runs a charity that helps young black boys get into the STEM field, you know, in terms of tapping into their talents and not tapping into their victimhood. So it's just, you know, an inspirational, inspirational person here. And he said that, he said, it's not about um, putting aside, you know, a group that you think is a so-called dominant group. You have to see what benefits all because we are all humans, right? So there doesn't need to be this, you know, like you mentioned, this kind of separate, you know, um, rules or practices just because people look different. It's it's actually anti-human, I think, this quest to completely equalize mm. everyone. It's against human nature that nothing good will come from that. Yeah, and it's kind of ironic <clears throat> that the the result that a lot of these things end up having is is not bringing people to an equal place it's it's subdividing people and as you said raising some up lowering some others demonizing some deifying others uh, I like what Jonathan Haidt has to say about the two different types of identity politics common humanity and common enemy and I think what we see in general is a lot of common enemy politics which only goes further to sort of divide and conquer in, for the most, um, you know, silly, arbitrary characteristics. Uh, so yeah, Jonathan Haidt has a lot of great things to say about that. Um, but yeah, identity politics, yeah, it, it's just taking these flimsy characteristics that we have and uh, using that to identify our the totality of our beings. And I think that's so insulting in a way and debasing uh, it's simplifying human beings to their characteristics and it has nothing to do with their their insights their characters or their motivations anything you want to take it from there so what uh what are your thoughts on kind of along the same lines what are your thoughts on quotas so if quotas are kind of a forced thing i think um, now, that is not to say that anyone that, you know, benefits of a quota system per se is there just because of that and they don't have, you know, the skills or the training, the experience or the qualifications, you know, to do that certain taxable job. So that's another thing, I think, when you're trying to push back against certain things, that it, it gets a bit lost as well. But I think quota systems don't overall are helpful in my opinion. If you, for a couple of reasons, but one that actually probably isn't touched on a lot is it actually puts an unnecessary pressure on the person that has been, you know, given that advantage or given that, you know, opportunity because of, you know, the color of their skin or the gender. And especially if they're aware of that, because you're not going in there based on, purely on your merits, right? Or what you've done. There is this extra thing that has been given to you. And, you know, the proof is in the pudding. We see that, you know, especially actually more in the United States and 
you know, a lot of black people that had, you know, you know, gone into certain institutions, um, universities, colleges on the back of affirmative action, it hasn't, they haven't done as well as those maybe who haven't, you know, and they have, you know, they, they, the dropout rates are very high. So it, 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 we've seen that it actually doesn't work. And that's why the ruling, you know, um, overturning the affirmative action, you know, policy is a good thing, you know, contrary to what many people have said, because now you can compete and we can compete. There's nothing that says we cannot compete, right? So quota systems, I think, you know, as I mentioned, it, it, it's ineffective. If you feel that, you know, certain people, there's always this talk of, well, we don't have this X amount of this group from, you know, in this space. Well, there's probably other questions to ask, or there's probably other things that we can look at apart from, well, let's just pick people based on their superficial characteristics anyway, right? If you find, like they found here in the UK, that in certain South Asian communities, um, the women, right, are underrepresented in a workforce. Well, it's very easy to jump on the fact that the system is rigged or racism is the problem. But how about we take a look at culture, right? How are, how are the cultural patterns different to other groups where maybe women are equally represented or even in some cases overrepresented? And it's not racist or xenophobic to ask that question. What are the cultural patterns? Is, is there a certain belief system that says that actually perhaps women are better, you know, in the home, whether you think that's right or not, but maybe that actually exists there. But I feel that we don't look at that. And that's why we enforce these quota systems, because we just think it's society's fault. You know, it's, it's you know, the the superstructure, you know, or the stru structural system, blah, blah, blah. And then we don't actually ask other questions. So. When you first, when you and your family first moved to London, uh, did you feel like you were, like, as far as people seeing you and hearing you speak, uh, the categories that you were getting put under, was it more about your race or was it more about you being an immigrant from Nigeria? Or was it a little bit of both of those? It was both. So when I was told by peers, so trivially, it was my ethnicity. So if I was told that I was weird or a black girl, then it was like, oh, well, it's because she's an African black girl. So in that sense. But in terms of the general society, what was, you know, more salient was my my racial identity per se, which obviously was very odd to me anyway, because I was never ever described as a black girl in Nigeria. Like just never, it just never comes out, right? Even when you overhear conversations about global politics, because obviously the UK and Nigeria, you know, uh, a big connection there. I, I don't hear that kind of talk, right? You say British and you say Nigerian, it's based on ethnicity which I think is, you know, a better indication of someone's identity than their racial identity. So, yeah, it was it was depending on the circle I was in, um, whether I would be seen racially or by my ethnicity. Well, that that leads me to a question. You're a very beautiful woman. And I, I wonder if your beauty somehow is a 
a leg up or somehow gives you more opportunities because you're attractive. Do you think that that has influenced your experience in the UK? Uh, not necessarily comparing or contrasting with Nigeria, because I'm sure there are many beautiful women. So the first time, sorry, finish. No, I was just saying that there's probably many beautiful women in Nigeria. So I, I would say you could be considered um, maybe more special because you're in the United Kingdom compared to being in Nigeria. But overall, would you say that your experience was different in the UK because you're attractive? So I wouldn't have known how my experience would have been in Nigeria. Um, I can guess that it would have still been good, but that's more based on my familial connections um, and the history that my family has, like in our villages and stuff. Remember, like I said, I was born in Nigeria, but I came here and I stayed here for like a decade before I went back. And I remember even just going back after that decade and, you know, the person at the airport looked at my passport and they saw my name and they said, oh, you're so-and-so's granddaughter. So we had a certain level of small prestige, in, yeah, in, in, my, my, in my like area and things like that. But um, here... <laughs> I don't know is the answer, but the first time I thought, okay, maybe my looks may have something to do with some of the opportunities I may have had, is I went for a job when I was 18, just after uni, university, and I just walked in for the job and he said, nope, you look good. <laughs> You <laughs> and I don't know whether to have been insulted by that, but I really needed the job. It was just a simple waitressing job anyway, and looks had nothing to do with it. But what I will say is that I don't know as well if it's just the looks. I mean, I think I sound so like, like we're talking about this, but it is an interesting point because I think it's also how you carry yourself as well. Like I am well-cultured, you know, I have been in these two countries, you know, I'm very interested in culture in general. You know, I learned another language, you know, basically self-taught myself and, you know, and people can kind of sense that approachability um, from myself anyway. And maybe they might not have got that from, a lot of, let's say, other ethnic minorities who feel that something is against them, right? And I don't have that, you know, aura against me, that negative, oh, I, I might not get this job because I'm Black or I might not fit in here because I, I don't have that. And believe it, whoever's listening and maybe has never heard this before, believe me when I say people can sense when you have this kind of defensive, oh, yeah. you know, protective, guarded, awkward sense about Absolutely. you. And like I said, it's not even just to do with, you know, your racial identity. Mm -hmm. This kind of energy oozes off a person who, I would say probably comes from this insecurity as well. When you think that you automatically won't be accepted because of this so-called identity that you've convinced yourself or you think society has convinced you that this part of your identity isn't good enough, right? I remember one time, because I taught English on the side for a while, and I had a, a, a student who was homosexual. And at that time, I was sort of a, 
practicing Christian, you know, and we got talking one day, just not about, you know, words and vocabulary, but about Christianity and he's talking about his identity. And it was just a normal conversation. And then the next time we arranged a lesson, I don't know, he sent me like an emoji. I thought it was like a baguette emoji, but it wasn't anything to do with anything. I didn't even think anything of it. But then I had to cancel the lesson because something else came up. And then he sent me a long paragraph saying, oh, I knew that you were homophobic just because we were talking about homosexuality the other day and I sent you a bed. I will never forget. I say you a baguette today. And I'm thinking, what does, what's a baguette? So if anyone knows what that emoji means, please tell me. But can you kind of see that it's like they're almost waiting yeah. for that confirmation that you didn't like them in the first place when something trivial happens. You know, and I'm saying all that to say that I've never had that. If I don't get an opportunity, if I fail at something, there is no way in hell race will even even if it may have been do you know why because that doesn't help me mm-hmm. you know we just seen the marvel's movie tank in the box office and the directors are already blaming racism oh my god how would that director learn how will they grow how will they do better the next time if the issue is external i would rather focus on what i didn't do because that way i win because i'll be better the next time i can't change that person's opinion of what they think about about black people neither do i care or want to all i care about is what opportunities i can really get hold of you know so that i can you know be well and do well in my own life i'm not saying we shouldn't challenge when obvious things happen but most of the time it's just this kind of subtle things that people just automatically jump you know into conclusions it's any isms, racism, sexism, or whatever. Mm. Yeah, I think it's so easy to, it's such an easy divide and conquer tactic to divide people up by their races or their perceived races. Um, But I think that sometimes that can overshadow the fact that a lot of what is happening is, I think, uh, really classism. Do you, do you, does that make any sense to you whatsoever? Yeah. Yeah. Is it... Yeah, because if you see, sorry. No, go ahead, please. Okay, so if you see even the differences within the UK, right, this is something that a lot of us, you know, be it conservatives or those who, you know, are on the left, so like myself, um, we are trying to find a way to push this message out more, that if we look closer, there is, a lot of, you know, disparity within these so-called groupings as well. And most of the time it does come down to class and it does come down to cultural patterns as well. We have to talk about those two things. You asked me why I speak and say things I say because of common sense, right? Most of my peers or my friends and my family are not people that will class themselves as oppressed, maybe politically or ideologically to join the conversation. But when they look at their lives, they will never class themselves in, they own their own homes, they own homes back home in Africa. You know, they don't lack anything. They're in very high positional um, professions in, in here in England and back home. So 
Why? Because if, like in my country, we we weren't, you know, I didn't escape poverty from Nigeria. Like I said, we were doing well, we were doing okay. So most immigrants that come into this country, we already come within sort of that middle class, you know, background, right? And that's why that's also reflected in the statistics. Talking about culture as well, you will see that, you know, within the black demographic group here in the UK, in terms of school exclusions, in terms of school achievement, in terms of income, you know, in terms of um, any other, you know, business, commerce, we are, there's a, a, a thing that is well known that Africans do better than those born in Britain or the Caribbeans, right? So it's not all about race. It's not all about race. And if we insist on making it all about race, the groups that these people are so bent on helping, they're harming them because they're making it seem, you know, that there's nothing that can be done until the system, you know, this abstract, intangible, you know, boogeyman of a system, until that changes, I won't change. There's nothing I can do. So, yeah, that's definitely, there's literally just like one study <laughs> somewhere that talks about the di disparities within the, the minority groups. And I think that's very sad. And I think that's a deliberate thing done to keep people in these positions because that's where political power from certain, you know, individuals or officials come from or goes to, shall I say. Yeah, I think to look to a government to uh, do the gatekeeping or the, you know, to to be the referee in any of these situations is a huge mistake because I think they may be very behind the very things that are causing these divisions or encouraging these divisions in the first place. Um, so we're kind of in a in an age right now where an age that might that makes it sound like it's a huge chunk of time, but I really mean most recently in the last maybe 10 years at the most, where things like transgenderism are applauded. Uh, they're encouraged. Sometimes they're, you know, I feel like sometimes kids are being pushed into ideas like that. Um, but yet something like, which I think, I don't see these two things as two completely different concepts as far as the dynamic is concerned, something like transracialism is something that is highly taboo. And I don't know what you feel about Rachel Dolezal, but... Uh, <laughs> I actually wrote her name I down. Did. Yeah, <laughs> and it's up there on my list of questions. But she's obviously was highly demonized. Uh, why do you think there's such a disparity between those two concepts? Um, and feel free to curse. I don't think I know. <laughs> I don't We're really a curse-friendly podcast, just so you know. Just Yeah. <laughs> I don't really curse anyway. I don't curse on podcasts for some reason. And if someone, when I get really passionate and someone, and I curse and someone messages me, oh my gosh, you curse. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just getting that out there. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I know. Um, but I do think it's a strange phenomenon, you know, something that's biologically wired into you, you know, like your your sex is so changeable apparently and fluid and, you know, you can decide it and something that's literally made up 
you know, literally made up. We like to talk about social constructions. That's literally something that's not biologically real, has no scientific basis, you know, and that's the one that's meant to be so fixed, you know, to the point that if you have a certain skin Mm. color, like white, you can't even like a certain music in public or you know, eat a certain food, you know, or wear a certain clothes because you are not apparently that, you know, you're not allowed to partake in that, right? So isn't that strange? But, you know, I I don't know why that is. I don't know who is trying to sort of keep these divisions so separate. And, you know, I don't know, you know, the reason and the purpose of that, but I do find that it's it's odd, definitely. Very odd. Well, I think in Rachel Dolezal's case specifically, I think there were some issues with um, self-hatred and a denial of her own upbringing and a denial of her own uh, familial structure. And I think what she attempted to do was adopt another uh, culture and another race that she felt more comfortable with and more accepted by. Uh, what I think the challenge is, and what is so sad about that case, is not her experience, but the experience of her children. And what she has done is actually, from their perspective, ruin their lives because they are mixed race. And so now they don't necessarily fit into what they would consider a um, Anglo culture or a black culture because their mother has uh, for all intents and purposes kind of hijacked their experience. So I think that's kind of an interesting um, example of someone who has done something that Maybe, you know, in looking backwards, she would say, well, this was not a good decision for me to wear self-tanner and, you know, perm my hair and try to identify with this specific race because that's where, like, black men were more attracted to me and I felt more comfortable in that space. Uh, so I think that that there's a overarching message here that I found interesting from black women that were saying there's no way that a white woman could ever understand the oppression or the experience of a black woman. And I think they were more uh, annoyed by that, that she was trying to say that her version of oppression is the same as a black woman. So then it becomes this, this bid for who is the most oppressed yeah, and I think that's problematic in itself. And, you know, I think mixed-race people um, or biracial people, I think they struggle with that anyway, even without having a background, you know, like Rachel Dolezal. I mean, I've seen and heard, you know, and spoken to countless of them that feel like they always have to pick a side, right? And the reason that is is because we have these, like, Chris said this idea that everything has to be so distinct, you know, and if you even look at what's his name, Colin Kaepernick, and, you know, there was that this, you know, he dissociated from his parents because it's like, well, 
I don't want to be seen as having mm. to do anything with that. You know, and it happens time and time again, even the author of I'm not talking to why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. Mm. You know, I forget her name now. And there was a chapter in the book where she had that conflict with her mom because she's mixed race or black. Mm. I, I think it's mixed race, if I'm not mistaken. And her mom is white. And there was that that friction because, like you said, well, you can't understand me or my experience and I find that quite disheartening because you know how can race just come in between you know that bond of a mother and child you know something that should ascend you know transcend race I just find it odd that your mother can't understand you you know she doesn't have to be you or have your skin color to understand you and you even see this you know beyond parenting parents and child relationships you even see it with just marital relationships or you know in general and that's why you have concepts like black love which is another problem I have is racializing of universal concepts right so black love and if you actually look at what black love is it's apparently just being with someone that's black because they can therefore understand your exact experience and I think it's it's just a lie no one can fully like understand like the innermost workings of your mind anyway but we can all relate to each other on that human level exactly if you can understand pain love hurt mm -hmm. rejection disappointment hope joy you can understand another freaking human being and i don't understand this you know it's like we're in a special category and i've written about this many times the black experience I, you know i was watching and a therapist, the black therapist, and I've heard other black therapists say this, that black people need black therapists because they need someone to understand. You're just like, I, you know, if you, if you need that and you really need that, that's fine. But let's not send out this message because then that's what's actually, again, harming the people that need the help. Because it's like, well, this person can't help me because they're white. But I bet if you were drowning in a pool, you know, or somewhere, you're not going to care about the color of the person's skin. Yeah. You know, it's, it just seems that we pick and choose when someone is able to help us and when someone isn't. So I forgot the question, but I guess we got somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> one of my, one of my mentors is a uh, Ethiopian woman and her husband is an Ethiopian man and they live in a very conservative part of Kansas and he at least once a week gets stopped by the police and she said to him at one point you know I am so shocked by how you respond to these exchanges like you never get angry, you never get upset, you never get into some shouting banter with these police officers. How is it that you're capable of handling this, these exchanges in the way that you do? And he said, because I have three sons and what I want to teach my sons is that this is not about me being black. It's about me as a man handling a situation and how do I handle that situation? And that's what I want to teach my sons. I don't make it about my race, even though for that person that may be about my race, this is about my character and what type of a person I am. 
And it just really highlighted the fact that he understands the difference of the environment that he's in coming from Ethiopia and being in this small town in Kansas, but the person he is is the same. Yeah, exactly. And it's like what I was saying earlier, right? It has to be, of course, as I mentioned, when something needs to be challenged, there also needs to be a way to challenge it. And we're not doing, you know, we're we're doing a great disservice to our children when we think that the only way to challenge something is to, you know, wild out and protest. You know, there's just so many different ways. If we look at the examples of people in the past anyway as well, even if you look at Martin Luther, if you look at Booker T. Washington, look at so many people that it was through their character who our organization is, is named by after, you know, Equiano, he was a black African abolitionist here in the UK, intelligent, you know, eloquent man that was able to do that, right? Without having this, you know, feeling of, you know, animosity or rage or victimhood or sort of particularizing every event to him to himself. And I feel that's what happens sometimes. We we there's this narrative that this is happening to you because it's you. And not because, you know, it's just an unfortunate thing that hundreds of thousands of other people also go through. And my point is that doesn't make it right, but it's, it, it does something to a person's psyche when you make, make it seem that the whole world just moves, you know, deliberately just to, you know, put them in harm's way or make them suffer. And that's what separates winners and losers, right? Isn't it funny that you have people who really went through deep, legal, in-your-face oppression, and they were, they're able to come and say, I am a better man today. This is what I learned. This is what happened. And you have some people that, you know, someone just looked at them a little bit funny, you know, and that's enough for them not to go out in the world and conquer what they need to conquer. Yeah, what you were saying earlier about how you present yourself in the world and what you project your inward to the outward really has a huge, huge role in all of this. And no matter what situation you're in, no matter what kind of human you are, how you, what you carry around inside inevitably gets projected on the outside. And I think that element is lost on a lot of people because they just, I don't know whether they, maybe that, that part hasn't been accentuated in their, in their raising, upraising or they think their 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 voice or their opinion is insignificant, or they just don't believe in the fact that you, um, how you carry yourself in the world and the way that you interact with it and the words you use and the tone you use really affects every single aspect of things. So I, yeah, I think that part is definitely underrated. We're in an age where, you know, in the out of the outsourcing of responsibility. And that also includes personal responsibility, Mm. you know, especially in the Western world, as much as it's great, you know, it's, you know, liberal order, liberal values, enlightenment and all that. Awesome. But one thing that we're seeing is the outsourcing of responsibility, responsibility, whether it's outsourcing responsibility of taking care of your own children. So you have people blaming the government of certain things when it's your responsibility to raise your own child and make sure your child has a safe place, you know, where they can thrive, right? Whenever I see 
a, a story of a young black boy being stabbed in the UK and I see a mother on the screen talking about because he didn't have any youth clubs to go to. That's why her son stabbed another human being. I, I just don't understand, mm. you know. Okay, the boy didn't have a youth club, but he had you, right? And you don't have to be physically in a home to distill some kind of discipline and order from your child. And I, I just don't buy that excuse anymore. You know, when we were here, my dad was pretty much on his own for a while and he made it seem that I could be 10,000 miles away. And if I was even thinking about doing something wrong, his voice was in my ear. So that is a skill, I guess, nowadays right. to have that kind of, that level of respect from your child that their actions will they believe that their actions reflect on you but that's an aside point so this outsourcing of personal responsibility people are not so much interested in seeing what they can do to improve their situation right it's always well what has been done to me right and it's 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 nice in a way because there's you know it's comfortable for you you there's no there's nothing expected or there's not no energy or, or or sort of nothing that has to be extracted from you. You just stay in your place and wait for the thing to change. But there's no reward in that, you know, there's no yes. um there's no, you know, self-development, nothing. The person that loses is the person that doesn't choose that path of introspection to see how, you know things, you know, can work out for themselves. Yeah, I'm shocked by these these events that are now um, coordinated and orchestrated on TikTok and I would assume probably Snapchat, these snatch and grabs that are being uh, orchestrated all over the United States. I don't know if this is happening in the UK necessarily, where there will be a message out like, okay, let's go to Nordstrom or let's go to Harrods if we were in England uh, and just maraud and steal whatever we can. So this idea of, you know, minimum effort maximum return seems to be this kind of overall narrative like we don't have to work for anything and then it's ill-gotten gains then you you have these things you have all of the trappings but you didn't earn those things do you think that social media is playing a role in this striving for material goods and like this lack of uh, maybe a christian uh, ideal or some type of a spiritual foundation that would stop someone from stealing? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people blame or sort of point to the kind of religion, particularly Christianity. And I can understand that. Um, like you said, especially when you don't have that at the back of your mind, that something else is, you know, watching you as Christianity had. But I definitely think it's definitely not that. It's a combination of things. And social media has exacerbated the problem, right? And, you know, we're in an age of, like I said, outsourcing of responsibility, sort of fast-paced, things can, are easy. And like you said, there's minimum consequences. In fact, there's even justi justification for why you did what you did. And that's what I said about the you know, youth club or so on. We don't blame, we don't put the blame 
where the blame needs to be put. It's always put on the government. And I get it. You know, it's always this, you know, way to try and hold the government accountable or make sure that the government is doing what it needs to be, be doing. But I think sometimes we just need to go back to basics, you know, family structure, right? You know, religion or spirituality, basically something higher than yourself, right? If we, if we don't do that, then social media are just the tools, you know, for the, this destruction rather than, you know, the causes of it, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really sad. And I think coupled with, you know, this game of identity politics as well, where, you know, people are excused because they're in a so-called, you know, oppressed group and it's not their fault why they behave that way. So that agency is taken from them, right? That's why laws are relaxed, you know, for certain groups or you're not allowed to say anything because, you know, that deems you as racist. Because especially in countries like the UK and US, you know, who want to, who feel like this is some kind of a way to atone for the past, you know, sins and the past atrocities that they may have done. And it's so bizarre because we can't mix these two things, right? It doesn't actually solve the problem. If anything, you're creating, you know, disorder in your own societies in the name of social justice and, you know, atonement. I did find it interesting that these uh, people who were involved in the Black Lives Matter organization were also involved with the transgender, we could call it an agenda, and that a lot of money was being siphoned from Black Lives Matter to these organizations, these transgender organizations. What do you think the overlap with that is? I think... Sorry, in terms of what do you mean? Sorry. Like, why would someone that is part of the, is it just a money laundering scheme? Like they're, they're using Black Lives Matter, like as the umbrella, like for the overall oppression of Black people. So they take this money and then they have a spouse or a partner who is part of the transgender community or somehow they're involved in the transgender community. So they create this clinic or this, this um, safe space for transgender people. I wonder it just seems so strange that there's any type of an overlap. Do you think it has something to do with one quote unquote oppressed group using that umbrella to uh, basically steal money in the name of another oppressed group. Yeah, and I don't know why people don't realize that, you know, all this is to do with wielding political and financial power for, you know, for, for different groups, right? And it's so weird that black the Black identity has become some kind of a benchmark, you know, on what oppression actually is. And it's like, you know, if you want your, your cause heard, then link, link it to black people. You know, we've seen it now with the Palestine conflict in Israel, and it's been, you know, you know likened to, you know, black oppression and, and, and things like that. You know, we even saw cases in the UK um, where they're trying to do like an environmental thing called ULES. I'm not going to go into it, but it's just something to do with, you know, um, 
vaccine. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, yeah. yeah. And there were some stories, you know, saying yeah, what, fifteen minute cities. Exactly. And it's like, well, it's actually gonna harm black people. And there was a story about that. And even the online safety bill in the UK in terms of the government having more, you know, access to your privacy and it was linked to, well, because black people experience racism. And it's like, why is it like to kind of validate, you know, your cause, you know, link it to black people and you have that stamp of approval. But yeah, I saw the whole thing as quite nefarious, you know, there's nothing fighting for, you know, rights or whatever. But I think to, you know, claim that it's, you know, actually for the betterment of these people, I think it's actually false when you see that the leaders of many of these groups and the front runners, you know, time and time again, we see them exposed as frauds. We see them exposed as not actually, you know, doing the things. And this is not new. This is from the beginning of when, you know, uh, civil rights and all that started. Yes, you had, you know, good things that came out of it, but, you know, you had people using and misusing and abusing these causes to enrich their own pockets you know and it's that's why I I don't buy into these things that's why I push more for individuality and that personal responsibility because no one is going to save you you know and I I don't I'm not even angry at these people that are you know it makes sense because that's what I'm saying. Yes, we should all be in it for ourselves in a way and just do what we need to do and stop looking for things and people to save us. That's what we are saying. And these people are making bank of, you know, actually the genuine pain and the genuine complaints of certain people, which can be tackled in different ways. I'm not saying these complaints aren't there, but there has to be, you know, better ways to look at them. Ada, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and chat with us. It's been absolutely delightful. And uh, we barely, I feel like we barely touched the surface uh, on a lot of this stuff. And if you would uh, honor us with coming back and maybe continuing the conversation, we would we would love that. 100%. I really love the conversation. I love, you know, um, everything that was discussed. I think a lot of it needs to discuss a bit more. And, you know, the mm-hmm. sad thing is that it's seen as controversial when there's nothing controversial about these topics, you know, actually digging into certain issues, you know, in different ways is what actually brings the progress. And it just baffles me that we have to have these kind of, you know, platforms to speak about it. And it's not actually discussed widely, you know, on on mainstream media, but I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I'd be happy to come back. Fantastic. Fantastic. Cool. Uh, what you were going to say? I was just going to say, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you. And I thank you so much for your time and your energy. And, uh, I look forward to continuing to follow you on social media. And we will, Oh yeah. Speaking of which, where uh, the people who are listening and watching, where can they find you and your work online? So um, for my personal rants, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, <laughs> um, sometimes Facebook, Ada Akpala. Mm-hmm. For my professional work, you can find me at the Equiano Project. So that's the Equiano Project um, on um, Instagram, on YouTube. We have a lot of great conversations with leading thinkers and politicians and academics on, you know, topics on race, um, culture, 
um, identity and so on, history, philosophy. So you can find me there. Yeah, I can attest to that. I've been listening to a lot of those and they're highly fascinating, very compelling and yeah, great discussions. So we'll put all of those links in the episode notes, but we'll let you also let you know when this goes live and at a, have a fantastic rest of your day. I guess it would be evening or afternoon. What would that be? Evening. Yes. Yes. And, yes. uh, I will look, and then in the evening. Some, Oh, okay. <laughs> and we will, I'll get a hold of you uh, and we'll set up a, a time to do the next chat, maybe sometime early next year. Perfect. Thank you so much, Chris right. and Hunter. Yes, Thank you. We send you many blessings. Thank you. What are your thoughts? I absolutely loved our conversation. I, I'm quite impressed with her and she's very well spoken and I uh, felt very comfortable having these uh, kind of complicated uh, conversations about very complicated subjects with her. Um, you know, I'm just always impressed with anyone who is willing to talk about things that are current and ongoing hot button issues. So it was great. But discuss them rationally and level-headedly and with which she mentioned more than once, common sense. I think that's highly important. And it's easy, you know, some would say it's easy for white people to have these conversations because we have the luxury and the intellectual freedom or whatever to ponder these things because we're not, quote unquote, in the middle of it or we're not subject to these sorts of issues. But uh, I think the important aspect of all of that is that they are human issues. They're not issues necessarily on people's gender or their race so much as human issues. And I think to say you can't understand my experience because you're not this, that, or the other is ridiculous. I mean, humans ideally are empathic creatures. And uh, if you take it out of the realm of race or gender or sex or ethnicity, and look at it as a human thing, as um, issues of dignity, issues of exclusion, issues of shame, issues of self-hate, whatever. There's These are things that we all experience. Mm. But instead, we divide these things into, I only feel this, and you. there's no way you can even begin to relate to that. I think it's ridiculous. I mean, I grew up a white kid, but I know what exclusion is like. I know what it's like to be outcast and stuff like that. I mean, maybe not on the same in the same context or to the same extent as somebody else, but that gave me a, enough of a taste of it to understand what that must be like uh, as a fellow, as one human to another fellow human. So I think to 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 belittle that is to belittle our our common humanity and that's a that's a big deal. Well, in my experience, I, I have seen that the people who tend to be uh, the most um, kind of entrenched in this idea of entitlement are people who are not very sophisticated and who have not traveled extensively. So for me, the way I, I kind of reconciled my life was going outside of the United States and living for a period of time 
outside of the the comfort or the confines of living in the American westernized culture. Bubble. And what I would say is for some people who just ju- judge people based on these very, you know, surface criteria is take yourself out of this circumstance and put yourself in another environment and you'll see how um just how these ideas are are very uh self-serving and that they're not necessary Mm -hmm. that being a decent human is universal and those things carry across borders it it's not just because you live in this country that you have privilege it's because you have integrity or you have a certain um, outlook on the world that uh, gives you more of the capacity to see someone as an individual and not in groups. And I think that's the part that I get so frustrated with with some of these discussions is how can you lump an entire group of people together and say, Every single member of this group has privilege. Every single uh, member of this group is disenfranchised. There are such individual experiences in both uh, circumstances that you can't paint with such a broad brush. And it's such a disservice to people to do that. And I I just find that so unfortunate. And it serves another uh, power that, you know, it's like, all you're doing is you're just reinforcing the government. <laughs> exactly. And I think so much progress had taken place in in the area of quote unquote racial relations uh, for many decades, uh, or at least the last few decades. And I feel like the last decade or the last five years in particular, we've taken a huge step back. Um, and I don't, I'm not a part of that game. I don't feel like my my mindset has taken a huge step back, but I think collectively with all of this fucking, I mean, I I don't know why it can't be seen for what it is, divide and conquer. Like it's so successful, such a highly successful campaign to divide human beings up. I think anything that divide, that people use or, or institutions or governments use to divide people up, I don't give a fuck as to what, under what category or in what way, is, has no place in our common humanity, in our in our human experience, has no place. All of the divisions that we self-impose, I feel the same exact way about it. It's I find it astounding that people would um, would impose uh, categories and 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 uh, divisions based on arbitrary characteristics upon themselves willingly and feel proud of it and, and carry flags around about it. Uh, excluding themselves from the, the the greater humanity I just find that I just don't understand it um I, I just don't understand it I mean maybe it's not saying I'm not saying anybody should be ashamed for being one color or or sexual persuasion or anything like that but it doesn't we don't need to build an organization around it like we're you're still a human being you're just having one variety of human experience and I think anything that dissolves that common humanity, amongst us is has no place in in our world no place well i have been examining uh evolutionary biology quite a bit recently and when we look at 
just the, you know human history for the past you know six million years it's so fascinating to see how the cycles that we have gone through and what has benefited one group has been at the expense of another group and the the kind of overarching uh theory or or the overarching element to this is that it's always been an outside group that comes in and makes mm -hmm. these alterations and makes these changes so it's the church that's the first government as the church comes in and says well uh, you know in instead of uh you inheriting your land your father's land when he dies now all of that land is going to go to the church and so there's a huge land grab that happened in europe when uh this uh this was implemented and throughout history there have been these outside groups that have slowly eroded the family system and it's so interesting to see how the feminist movement has played a part in that and how the feminist movement, while it seems like, again, we, we are looking for equity and, and women want equal pay and women want um, equal outcomes, what the, that movement has done is actually erode the family system and it's created all of these single parents you know you add in uh, the access to birth control you add in uh, women going out and having the ability to have multiple partners and then uh, they have maybe multiple children by multiple men and you wonder why the the that that has eroded the family structure and what is that done well it's brought in the government and now the government is supplementing income and the government is really involved in that structure and and trying to uh, reinforce this bifurcation of men and women so i think all of these things are related and it's not just a racial divide that we are seeing it's a cultural divide it's a sexual divide and all of these things contribute to each other and i think that that's one of the reasons why there is a a uh, demographic crisis that's happening where birth rates have plummeted across the globe in different uh cultures and in different parts of the world so i think this is something that we need to continue to discuss and examine yeah. and and really kind of drill into because at the rate we are going in the next 50 years you know we are going to head we potentially we are headed heading into this technocratic future where you know people have robots in their homes and that they're getting their sexual uh, pleasure from something that is not sentient and is not, you know, organically based. So, you know, I think the, the problems that we think that we have right now will only be exacerbated if we don't continue to have these types of discussions. And I think that's why it's really powerful to have people like Ada on 
because we need different points of view and we need to be able to speak to people who have different um, ideologies and different perspectives. And I just think it's very powerful. I know Absolutely. that was a rant. but That's okay. We're, we're trading off. Here's my rant. My! No. Um, Back in my day. I think that uh, I've heard Ada say it, and I've heard Dr. Sheena Mason say it, who we're going to have on in January, who wrote a book about racelessness and, and, and really goes into the concept of racelessness. As they have said and intimated many, many times, how do people, how do we stop racism? Well, stop teaching your children about race, period. And stop... Um, being so obsessively focused on racial issues, because really, in some sense, the the ongoing uh, tension around the subject uh, is ironically exacerbated by obsessively focusing on it all the time. I don't consider the the conversation that we had today obsessively focusing on it. I think it's a very level-headed, critical thinking, uh, an objective viewpoint on these sorts of issues, but not you know, not definitively one way or another, but open-mindedly uh, talking about these concepts that are, you know, have lots of different ways of looking at them. But I think to constantly, I mean, just turn on, there's, here's an exercise for you. Just turn on NPR and assuming that there's not some classical radio or classical music show that's on or one of their usual, well, even if it is one of their usual programs that like This American Life or something like that, Race is going to be brought up. Um, you can count on it. Race, Racial issues are going to be brought up, um, if not some left-right political bullshit. Um, and you will begin to see how media, in particularly what, we, what I used to consider the liberal open-minded media, are constantly seeding the metaphorical emotional clouds of our ecosystem with these ideas that there are two groups of people. They're the oppressed and they're the oppressors. And nobody can vary from those categories. And of course, the oppressed are going to be people of a certain race and people of a sex certain sexual orientation. And I don't know, is, are women even in that category anymore? Fuck, what, what is a woman? But um, I do want to add a caveat to that. Okay. That racelessness does not mean a lack of cultural or ethnic identity. So you can still be raceless and have your culture. You can still yeah. be raceless and have your ethnicity. So the things that make ethnicity and the things that make culture are food, our music, our art. And those things don't have to go away. Exactly. Yeah, but calling somebody, you know, lumping a group of people together because of the vaguely similar color of their skin and, and classifying them all as one is ridiculous, unless you're going to classify everybody as human. And then that's not ridiculous. That makes a lot of sense. So, yes, yeah, stop focusing, putting the microscope on this concept of race. And I love what Ada said about when I brought up so why is transgender, transgenderism something that's almost encouraged these days, but transracialism is like the biggest taboo ever? Uh, she had a great comeback to that. It's interesting because, you know, it's very, there are very obvious biological mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, ways of differentiating, differentiating gender and sex. Um, but 
to uh, take a concept like race, which is very nebulous and 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 really just superimposed upon whatever culture or whatever society uh, that you happen to be a part of, uh, definition is imposed upon that, and 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 saying that that is much more taboo than in you know pretending to be the opposite sex. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. I am curious, and and I wanted to touch on that, and we didn't uh, circle back to that. I I am curious to know what the statistic is in Nigeria or in overall in Africa regarding transgenderism. If mm-hmm. this is something that is a phenomenon there, yeah. if it's a limited phenomenon. You know, I know that there are some different perspectives regarding homosexuality in Africa, but I would be really curious. Like I know in um, the Middle East that the government will pay in some countries, the government will pay for uh, someone to have a sex change operation because it's illegal to be homosexual in certain countries. So I wonder what the the perspective is regarding transgenderism. Yeah, I would be I would be interested to know that too. So, obviously, Ada is definitely going to come on again. Yes, um, it was and, fantastic. Yeah, and uh, quite a few times if if she's up for it. Um, but yeah, she, she was great. She was fantastic. I I really love her refreshing uh, outlook and attitude, um, which is very common sense, and that's like my religion is common sense. I think that's that's what this world needs right now is common sense like come on really just this just this just makes sense so thank you ada for your your clear-headedness and uh wonderful way of of uh articulating these things that are sometimes hard to articulate yeah and i just want to thank her parents i mean she's such a beautiful person and so smart and i just it, it really does speak to her family and the the uh, upbringing that she received. So I I want to give a shout out to her people because I think they're probably really um, incredible humans and and hopefully proud of her. Yes, I yes. I I was very very impressed at how astute and uh, just what a a great guest she was. So I look forward to many more conversations in the future. Indeed. Hopefully you glean something positive from this. Uh, I think I'll just put the whole thing out for free instead of having like 15 or 20 minutes behind a paywall. Sure. So, sure. Um, yeah, feel free to reach out and let us know what you think uh, or if you have uh, recommendations for more guests. And we always encourage you to reach out to our guests uh, and let them know that you uh, really appreciated hearing them on The Melt and, and you know, Uh, Follow them on whatever their social media outlets are and subscribe where appropriate, so on and so forth, because all these people, we bring them to light because we feel that they um, could use all of our support. Uh, So, yes. Anyway, the way to do that is the Melt Podcast at Gmail, excuse me, at ProtonMail.com or Hunter-Muse at ProtonMail.com. We appreciate I appreciate the ability to talk. Let's see if I can summon that ability. Um, We appreciate you uh, taking the time to listen to this, and hopefully you are walking away with something positive from the discussion. I know that I certainly am. So 
Thank you all for listening. Much love to the human community. More, more of this stuff coming. Just pay attention and, uh, hey, hit that subscribe. Ta-ta. Yeah. Thanks so much for making it this far. If you've liked what you've heard and are thus inspired to contribute to the well-being of the melt, there are a few easy ways to do that. The most tangible being financially, which can be achieved by clicking the Locals or Patreon link in the episode notes, and then you will be led through the process of starting your monthly subscription for a mere $5 a month. This will give you access to exclusive episodes, full-length episodes, and you can participate in our monthly Melt Meetups, where we can congregate together as a community and often get a chance to chat with some of our guests more intimately. Another way to help out would be to go to wherever it is that you listen to the Melt and leave a favorable review or rating. You can also spread the word via sharing or recommendation to friends and family, either in person or virtually. And lastly, if none of those options are readily available or appealing to you, simply send your positive thoughts and intentions. In an interconnected and quantumly entangled multiverse, these also go a long way. Thank you. <laughs>